0: It's going to be entitled The Seven Churches of Revelation. Uh, This is a seven-part series where we're going to look at uh, each of these churches over the next coming coming weeks, and we're going to focus on the churches specifically listed in the book of Revelation. But before we continue, I want to take a moment to explain what this series is as well as what it is not. So this series, it's, it's not the, a study of the entire book of Revelation. We could spend years doing that, and, and, and for right now, we're just going to be covering these churches. And, and with that comes the idea that we're, we're not going to be covering the different views of the end times that is found in Revelation. Um, however, if you have any questions about that, if there's something that you don't understand... Please come talk to myself, To come talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to have those conversations with you. We're just not going to have those conversations in here during this series. And so for this series, over the past year and a half, we've been in, in the book of Romans. We've been studying this letter that Paul has written, and we've learned some very important theological concepts. We've learned the sinfulness of humanity, uh, God's judgment of sin. We've learned justification by faith freedom from the law, and life in the spirit. And we've learned how to apply these theological concepts to our lives, Uh, whether that is learning and developing our spiritual gifts, whether that's understanding how to approach our brothers and sisters in a way that would not cause them to stumble. We've learned how to apply these things. And so with this new series, what the goal of this series is is to take a step back and look at the example of seven churches that we find in Revelation, who understood these theological concepts that, that Paul had written about in Romans. They, they understood these things, and these churches had at one point been these flourishing, prospering places, but something uh, over time, over, over the years, as they passed by, something happened. These churches faced certain issues. Some of these churches, when they faced these difficulties of life, they did really well. Uh, they, they persevered through these things. Some of them, where they faltered in one area, they were successful in another. And then there were churches who completely missed the mark. And we want, to be the churches, we want to be like a church who responds well, not like the church that missed the mark. And I'm sure that we all know of churches that have missed the mark. I'm sure some of us have been in those churches, and some of us have even been hurt by those churches. We don't want to be that place here at Living Water. And so as we look back on these seven churches of Revelation, we want to look at them as an example for not only how to approach our lives, but how we approach each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to to understand how these these churches responded to the culture and the politics and the, the persecution of their day because we face the same things today. And so over the next several weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to learn from their example. We're going to see how we as a church family can grow closer together and be built up as the body of Christ. So with that being said, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we start today. Father God, I just want to come before you, Lord, and I just want to thank you for allowing us to gather together and worship your name today. And I ask, as we are about to walk through your text and your word here, Lord, that it would be your words and your truths that are spoken today. And Father, I pray that if there's anything that would hinder the speaking of your truth, I pray that you would pardon me and allow me to communicate your words. And if there's anything that would hinder the receiving of your truth today, Lord, I pray that you would pardon us in the room and allow us to receive the truth of your word. Allow us to have hearts to, that, that can understand, eyes that can see, and, and ears that can hear your truth and guide our conversation through your word today. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the King of King and Lord of Lords. Amen. So today we're going to be discussing the church of Ephesus. This is the first church that we find in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. But before we do that, I want to give some context of what Revelation is all about. Just an overview so that we can fully understand What is being communicated to these seven churches that we're going to look at over the next couple weeks? So the book of Revelation, it was written in somewhere between A.D. 95 and A.D. 96. It's known throughout history as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Greek title in the original language, it's, it's based off this word apocalypse. And I'm sure when you hear the word apocalypse, you think of some of the movies and the TV shows we have today. Maybe Independence Day that Will Smith was in, or the Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. That's what comes to mind when I think of it. Uh, but when we look at this word apocalypse in the original meaning, that, that, that word, it really means unveiling. And so when we say that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're, we're saying that this is the, the unveiling of the message of Jesus Christ. It's generally accepted that the Apostle John is the writer of the Book of Revelation, and we know John as being one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest friends. He's the apostle of love that we find in the Gospel of John. And so this letter, it was written on this island of Patmos. It's off of the coast of, of modern-day Turkey. You can kind of see it there. And basically, John was exiled to this island for being a Christian, And this was during the reign of the the Roman emperor Domitian, and and he really just hated Christians. He killed many of them, and he exiled a lot of Christian leaders like John uh, so that they would not be influential. And so this letter here, it was written on this island, and it was designed to be a circulatory letter. It was designed to be passed along to all the different churches. You can see a little bit of the map of how this letter was moved around. This was in the order that the churches are written to. Uh, And you can see this is all along the Roman highway that is there at the time. And so this letter, it was designed to uh, be read by the congregations, for the congregations to then copy the letter and then to send it along to the next church for them to read it, understand it, and learn from it. And so there's just a lot of things that are going on here, but it's addressed to these seven churches that we see here on the screen. And specifically today, we're going to be looking at the Church of Ephesus. And so if you would, go ahead and uh, get out your Bibles. We're going to go ahead and jump into the text for today. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible, feel free to find it in there. There are Bibles around the room on the table. Um, It will be on the screen as well for you to read. And once you find it, if you would, could you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have you hate the work works of the nicolaitans which i also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches the one who conquers i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god here ends the reading of god's holy word you may be seated so as we begin our text today we find ourselves looking at jesus's words to the church of ephesus Ephesus, it was this major city in the Asia Minor area, and it's widely considered to be the most uh, important city in the area. And even though it wasn't the capital of the region, it was a city of great political importance. You see, this this city, it had a major marketplace that people from all around the known world would come and visit. It had stadiums, and it even had a massive theater that could hold 25,000 people at a time. It's kind of like modern day, if we were to visit New York or Los Angeles, it's this place where all these people are traveling to for all these different reasons and experiences. It's like a cultural hub. But not only was it a cultural hub, it was also a religious hub. One of the seven wonders of the, of the world, the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana to the Romans, it was located in Ephesus. It was four times bigger than what, we, what the Parthenon is. So it's this massive place. Now when you look at this temple, it was the temple of Artemis, and she was considered to be uh, the goddess of fertility. And so this temple, it was the scene of sexual immorality. Basically, the temple of Artemis would have been like if we set up a brothel here at Living Water. That's basically what it was. It's this horrible place filled with all kinds of immorality and wickedness. And there were also these temples and shrines for the Roman emperors there. They were worshipped as gods at this time. And so they had these temples and these shrines. And in this place, it was just overwhelmingly wicked and evil. There was a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. And he was as secular as one could be, but he was quoted as even saying that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. Ephesus was probably the most unlikely place for a church plant to start. Yet at the time it was one of the places in which Christianity found its greatest triumphs. So we see that in the text, when we look at the scriptures, we see that Paul he spent several years there in Ephesus establishing this church. You can find that in Acts. And eventually he would go on to write this epistle to the Ephesian believers. Uh, widely considered to be in a, uh, one of the most important epistles that he has written. And Timothy, who was Paul's student and traveling companion, he was also a minister of the people there. And, and, and according to tradition, we don't necessarily see this in the scriptures, but according to the early church fathers, the Apostle John lived there, and we have the, the, that he is the most closely associated with this city of anyone that we can find. And so this place where it was super wicked and and terrible, there was great Christian influence there. And so this text, it says that this letter is to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And that's a phrase that we're going to see throughout the next couple weeks as we look at the different churches. Um, And and this is a debated issue as scholars try to figure out who these angels are. Uh, For the sake of time, we're not going to go into all that debate. We could spend a whole uh, couple weeks on that. Um, but to bring some clarity, when we look at Revelation 1.1, we see that, that, that this vision of the Revelation was given to John by an angel. And angels are pictured in the Bible in several ways, but one of their main, uh, their, their main duties is being messengers from God. And that's what the angel in the first verse of Revelation is doing. And so there's no reason to think that when, when the scriptures reference the angels here, that it wouldn't be an actual angel delivering these messages or representing the church. Um, so we continue in, this, in the text then, and we see that, that now we hear the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus being spoken, and he, it says this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You'll see in these churches that we look at, there are these allusions to Christ in each one. They're each different. They each characterize a different part of Jesus. And in this one, we see that he is holding seven stars and he's walking among seven lampstands. What does that mean? And Jesus actually answers this question. I have the easy one because he actually answers this for us. Um, in chapter 1, verse 20, whenever he says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is a beautiful imagery and a beautiful picture and a reminder of the power of God. We first see that Christ is holding these angels. They're in his control. They're in his hand. And this word for control, it's a really strong word in the Greek. For hold, I mean. It means to have complete control over something. And so when we look at this picture, we see that that Christ is saying that he has complete control over these angels, these these angels that represent these churches. He has complete control over them. And, And there are moments in the church that we go through tough times, right? We aren't immune to that here at Living Water. We, we, we've gone through some tough times, and I'm sure we're going to face some hardships in the future. But this verse, it's, it should bring us comfort because in the midst of those difficulties of life, we can be confident that Jesus is in control. He is holding his churches in his hands, and that, that's where our security ultimately lies. It's a beautiful picture of his power. And in addition, we see that Christ walks among the lampstands. Now, like we said, the lampstands, they represent the churches. And so when, when we see this, he, Christ is saying that he's walking amidst the churches. He is there. He's actively present within their activities. And this kind of harkens back to what, what is said in Leviticus 26, 12, where God is speaking to the Israelites where he says this. He says, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Christ is not distant from his church. This, verse, this first verse, it tells us that Christ is tirelessly walking and caring for his churches. He's not confined to just one of them. He's in the midst of all of them. Wherever men and women meet to, to praise the name of God, he is there in the midst. Christ is there. And that's a beautiful reminder and a beautiful picture. And so as we continue in this text here, we're now going to discuss three truths that we find within this first section uh, of Revelation here to the church of Ephesus. And I'll give them to you up front here, these three principles. Number one is that love requires patient endurance in the midst of adversity. Number two is that love requires intentionality. And number three is that love requires hatred for sin, but grace for the sinner. So now we're going to look at this first principle. This first principle that that love requires patient endurance in the midst of adversity. Let's look back on verses two and three for a moment. The Apostle John writes uh, the words of Jesus, which say, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. As Christ walks among his churches, he recognizes the the deeds that are done by the Christians here in Ephesus. Now these deeds that are being done, they're not so much separate acts that they're doing, but it's their overall manner of life, the way that they are living and interacting with those that are around them. And clearly, the Ephesians did not take their faith lightly. They understood that, that faith demands a lot. They understood that, uh, that they needed to work hard to live up to the expectations of the Scriptures. They applied their faith practically every single day. They demonstrated that the, there, there is this reality and this concreteness in their commitment to their faith. They wanted to make sure that they made Christ proud in everything that they did, everything that they said, everything that they, they, they went ahead and did. And in addition, the, the Ephesians in, um the, the Ephesian believers, they took the time to test those who came in saying that they were apostles. And due to the culture of Ephesus, it being a wicked place, much of the church in Ephesus, much of their problems came from these false teachers who came in from the outside and tried to place themselves within these believing communities. And that's exactly uh, what Paul warned would happen after he left in his two years. He says this in Acts twenty twenty uh, nine. 29. He says this to the elders at the church of Ephesus. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so for this reason... The church at Ephesus, it tested those who would come in and want to teach. They would test them, and they, would also, they wanted to see who these people were because ultimately they knew that these individuals, they would come in and destroy the church. And none of this hard work that they did, it wasn't in vain either, because we see in verse 3 that Christ recognizes the hardships that they faced, and he commends them for it. He indicates that the church of of Ephesus, it didn't grow weary in all of these things as well. And this endurance, it's so remarkable, because by humanly speaking, they had every reason to falter. All the pressures of the world, all of the pressures of the culture, politics, the persecution as people of faith, they had every reason to grow weary and tired. But Christ commends them that they didn't do that. They, were, they persevered in the midst of this overwhelming circumstances. And I think that's very timely for us today as a church. Because being faithful, we, we, we know is hard. Obeying God's word, it's hard. Loving others, it's hard. We understand that. And, and this is what we're called to do, though, in the midst of all of the different situations. You know, we face situations like the pandemic, racial tensions, the opioid crisis. Every single one of us has lost family and friends because of those things. No matter what side of the coin that we're on, every single one of us has been impacted by those. But through it all, we're called to per- persevere in this. We're called to persevere in the midst of the adversity of the world. In the Church of Ephesus, they did that really well. However, we need to understand that this endurance that they had, it's, it's not due to anything they did. It's, it's not due to their own strength. It's not due to their own human fortitude. It's ultimately due to the sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ's name. right? That's what the verse says, that they did all these things for the sake of my name. Their love for Christ empowered them and enabled them to patiently endure in the midst of this overwhelming adversity, And that's truly remarkable. But now we get to the second principle that we see, something that they didn't do the greatest in. And the second principle is that love requires intentionality. Let's look back to this point in the text where Christ, he goes from commending the church to now condemning them. Listen to what the words of verses four and five say. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So even though the church at Ephesus had been working diligently for Christ, something had faltered. The text says that they abandon the love that they had at first. Other translations will say they abandon their first love. And so when we hear this idea of first love, our minds immediately go to the, oh, okay, they lost their first love of God. After all, that's their first love, right? And where that's an accurate assumption, we miss something in this. That's not actually what the the passage, what Christ is speaking of here. And I'll, I'll explain how we get to there here in a moment. But, what Christ is explaining in this passage is, is, is that the church of Ephesus has lost its love for each other, for believers, for their neighbors. They've lost this love for them. And, and so we see that the, the church of Ephesus, they did have great love for each other. Paul writes of it in Ephesians when he talks about uh, the love that they had right at the beginning in his uh, his his intro to the the letter of Ephesians. Listen to what he says about the the church of Ephesus. So Paul writes, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. So these believers in Ephesus, they were known for their love for others. They were known for their love, but it disappeared. This love had disappeared. And as we've seen earlier in the text, the, the church, they, had, they, they did an amazing job working for God, right? They, they persevered. They did this through the hardships. They tested those who were false prophets. But they would not have toiled and, and patiently endured for so long just on their own merit. They would not have done that for themselves. And so why did they? Well, the text says that they had been bearing up for my name's sake. Other translations say, you have persevered and endured for the hardships for the sake of my name. Whose name are they doing this for? It's Jesus. They are doing this for the sake of Jesus. And so, since they're striving to work and persevere all in the name of Jesus, it's clear that they have this deep love and affection for him. They have this deep love. And and as we look at this text, this abandoning of their first love, it's not this love of Christ, it's this love for the the church community in Ephesus. It has gone. We've seen that they loved each other, even in the midst of their disagreements. Their hearts, back back when Paul wrote to them, their hearts were ready to be stirred by God. Their hands were ready to help one another. But something had gone astray. Something had gone wrong. The desire for this sound teaching and this theological purity that they were, they were, they were looking for, it, it, it created this suspicion in the midst of trying to expose these false teachers. It created this, this suspicion which, which caused this love in this believing community to ultimately disappear. In the process of, of doing this, all of these works that they did, they don't replace relational love. They don't replace the love that they were called to and they, they were supposed to have. But why is this a big deal? Why does Christ take the time to point out that they aren't loving each other? What is the point of this? Well, when we lose our love for others, we ultimately lose our love for God. All right, listen to what the Apostle John writes in one of his epistles, 1 John, uh, starting in verse 7 of chapter 4. It says this, Beloved, let us love And this is love, not that we have loved, but God, but not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If, if we love one another, God abides, abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And jump down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. When we fail at loving our brothers and sisters, we fail at loving God. Listen to how Dr. Thomas Schreiner explains this. He says, The abandoning of one's first love means then that one has strayed, both, oh, strayed away from both love of God and love of fellow believers. The two are inseparable. The Church of Ephesus, they were persistent, they worked for the glory of God. However, a mean-spiritedness, this callousness came into the church. It rose in its ranks, and they forgot how to be warm. They forgot how to be generous in spirit. They forgot how to love each other. And they needed to be reminded that their love for God and their love for believers, they're inseparable. They needed that truth. And So what are the church of Ephesus, what are they to do because of this? Well, Jesus gives a three-step response in verse five when he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. The church is first called to remember its earlier days in which love abounded in the congregation. Memory, you know, it can be an amazing and powerful thing for bringing someone back into a more satisfying relationship. We see this within the story of the prodigal son. When the the younger son, he's off doing whatever he's doing and he ends up losing everything and working with the pigs and eating the food that the pigs are eating, memory comes to him. He remembers his father and his father's servant. He remembers that, that, that these hired men that worked for his father always had more than enough to eat. And because of that, it drew him back to his father. Memory can be an amazing first step on the way back to what comes next, which is repentance. The church is called to repent. And if there is to be true repentance, if there's to be true remembrance, the, the church needs to recognize this for their need for repentance. Repentance, it's, it's this acceptance of personal responsibility for our failure to God. And with that acceptance comes this godly sorrow. Because after all, if God grieves sin, it should also grieve our hearts when we sin against God. And then the third thing that the church is called to do is to do. Do the works that they used to. Now it's clear that the, the work ethic of the church of Ephesus, it didn't need to change. They were doing great things. But the purpose for why they were doing those things was was flawed. Their their work, it needs to be rooted in this generosity, in this compassion, and ultimately love. Otherwise, the work that they do, it's meaningless. Everything needs to be rooted in love. It needs to intentionally follow after love. And so what are the consequences for not doing these things? Well, Jesus says that he would come and remove the lampstand from its place. What is the lampstand? The lampstand is the church. And so when Jesus says that if the church does not heed this command, he will remove their lampstand, this signifies that, that Jesus is totally destructing this church. There's, there's no indication that Christ is with that, with that church anymore. He is no longer walking with it. Christ is absent from that place. And that's, that, that, that's really heavy. But it goes to show that a church without love it it will fail. They can only go on a loveless course for so long until there's destruction, until until Christ ultimately removes them and snuffs them out. That's a hard thing to hear. When there ceases to be love, there ceases to be a church. So as a church here, as living water, we need to take that very seriously. We need to understand that Love requires us to be intentional with our brothers and sisters who are sitting in this room, the people that we come in contact with, and for, for everyone that, that we see and meet, we need to love. But then the third principle that we see in this text comes into play, which is that love requires hatred for sin, but grace for the sinner. Listen to uh, the words of Christ from verses 6 and 7 of our passage today. Christ says, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in this section of our passage today, we, we, we see this there's this beginning talk of these people called the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a ton about them. Uh, Scripture doesn't tell us that much. When we look at the other churches, we're going to see that these people, they were uh, very involved with sexual immorality. They ate food that was uh, given to idols. Uh, They were just not that great of people. (laughs) And so these people, they, they tried to bring these principles into the church at Ephesus. Um, they're compared to these worshipers of Balaam as well. We'll see them later in the text as well. And, and those people, they did the same kind of things. But no matter who they were, we understand that they're trying to influence the church to be more like the world. They wanted to change the church for the world, not the church changed the world for Christ. And so these people, they were trying to come into the church and, and do all that stuff. But there's something really interesting that happens in this text. After all of this talk of love, Christ actually commends the church for their hatred, which is a very stark difference. How can this be? How can can Christ be commending them for this hatred? Well, it all boils down to what is being hated. And the text says it is the works of the Nicolaitans. It's these evil works. And while, the, while love, it's the typical Christian attitude, right? We're always called to love. It's this typical Christian attitude. Love for good, it carries with it the understanding and the corresponding hatred for what is wrong. Contrary to what we might think as believers, hatred is not incompatible with love so long as what is being hated is evil. It's a hard thing. In this verse, it might seem like it's a little out of place. At first glance, like, you know, when we look at this, we're talking about love, 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 and then hate. But Christ has this purpose for including it where he does in this verse. The Ephesian church, we saw it was deficient in its love for others. and Christ, he calls the church to remember its first love and to go back to that. But he wants to, in this verse, make sure that this call to love is not misconstrued. By telling the church to love and to love others, they might be tempted to let their guard down. And by letting their guard down, these uh, false teachers who they were able to get out, they might slip under the radar in. And that's what we don't want. And so with that being said, Christ brings, brings this idea that when we truly love our brothers and sisters, evil cannot be tolerated or excused. All right? All right. And that's what true love looks like in the eyes of God. And that's why Christ includes this verse after his command to love. And this reminds me of the saying, hate the sin, but love the sinner. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, that I, I heard it so much growing up. Because even though we hate and despise wickedness and evil, we are called to love that person. Listen to the words of Jesus from Luke 6. He says, love your enemies... Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Even though that there are people that will be against us as believers, even though we face these these persecution from others, we hate the sin that is being done. But we love the sinner nonetheless. True love requires hatred for sin, but true love also requires that we show grace and we show love To the person committing the sin. And so Christ, he continues this this conversation with the church in Ephesus in verse 7 whenever he says, He who has ears, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we've said uh, previously, the letter of Revelation, it's this circular letter meant to go to many different churches to be passed along for those to understand. And whenever we see this verse, there's this understanding that all those who hear need to apply these truths. And it's not just for that individual church of Ephesus. It's for everyone. So he's saying, when this church gets down the line, Hey, Philadelphia, this example of Ephesus here, learn from their example. And then from the church of Philadelphia to the church of Ephesus, he's telling Ephesus, learn from their example. There's this understanding that there is this this application to all who hear it. And the words, they carry universal meaning here too, which applies to not only all of the churches of of, of John's day, but all of the churches today as well. The church, as a church, we're, we're called as individual believers to heed this warning and instruction And to take it to heart because no matter what time period we are in, the struggle to love our brothers and sisters is something that we will deal with. And so we need to take these words to heart and learn from them and understand them. And then Christ, he he finishes this conversation with the church of Ephesus whenever he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this phrase, to the one who conquers, it, you'll see it throughout the, the rest of the letters to the churches. It's found in each of them. And these conquerors who we see in Revelation, they're not these people who have overcome an earthly foe. It's, it's these people who have remained faithful to Christ to the end. That is what we're conquering. And when the end comes, Christ promises the fruit of the tree of life. Now, if you look back on Genesis, we see we, we can remember there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve ate from, and there's this tree of life. And so when Adam sins, the tree of life, it was cut off and guarded by cherubim so that, that humanity would not take part in it. But now we see in this verse that, that Christ is, is now giving this tree and its fruit to the followers who endured to the end, those who have heeded the warning and the words of Christ a beautiful, beautiful picture of the amazing power and majesty of God. And so as we draw to a close today, I just want to ask a question. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? We have seen this example of the church of Ephesus. It was a church that persevered through the difficulties that life threw at them. And this was a church that they they checked off every box for what they were supposed to do. Every single one was checked off. They did it, they did it, they did it. But they forgot the reason for why they were filling out the check boxes in the first place. They forgot that they they, they were called to love God. And by following his commandments, they were called to love others as well. There are many times that I think we find ourselves in the same boat as the Ephesian, Ephesian believers. We become so absorbed with our daily tasks and our daily responsibilities that we, we forget to love others. You know, we become short in our conversations with people. There are times in which we're at the grocery store and we see one of our, one of our fellow brothers and sisters and we dive behind the next aisle because we don't want to spend five minutes talking to them. I'm guilty of that. Um, but we forget we're called to this love that this is a relational love and so what does this mean for us today it means that we are to live out what jesus said in matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37 that we are to love god with all of our hearts with all of our souls with all of our minds and to love our neighbors as ourselves we are to love god and love people And if we ever find ourselves when we're at this point where we have failed to love, look back to what what Jesus says to his church, that we would remember how we once loved and that we would repent for not loving and that we would do for no other reason to bring glory to God, which includes loving our brothers and sisters. And here in just a moment, Pastor Mike's gonna come up and he's gonna lead us in a time of communion. And in this time of communion, it's a beautiful way to remember this purpose of communion. It, it, it's meant to reflect back and look back on what Christ did for us on the cross. And as we remember the cross, we remember what God did for us, His great love for us, that He sent his only Son to die a death that each one of us deserved. That's true love. So let's be a church that's, that's, that's defined by our great love for God, that's defined by our great love for our brothers and sisters here, but also that we are defined by our great love for the neighbors and our community and for the whole world. Let's be a church that's defined by love. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you, Lord, for all of the blessings that you have given us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that radiates your love in everything that we say and everything that we do and everything that we think. Remind us daily of your great love for us. Jesus, I pray that you will continue to walk with us each day. I pray that we are able to be your bride, the church. And I thank you for allowing us to be safe and secure in your hands. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be able to surrender our pride and our desires and that we would lay them down at the foot of the cross. Continue to change us and renew our minds and our hearts each day that we continue to strive after you. Father, Lord, I, I also lift up this offering that we're about to take. May we give not with the expectation of anything in return and for no other motive than to bring glory to you and to build up your church. It's in your Son's most holy and most precious name that we pray. Amen. Uh, so here in a moment, uh, we're going